Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Hees. Welcome back, everybody. Another episode of the Habitat Podcast. Thank you once again for tuning in. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees. We have our co-host, Brian Hallbly on the line. What's up, B? What's going on, my friend? Well, we are going to have another great episode here with uh, Jason Hardy from Ohio. He um, he comes out of West Virginia. He owns property in Ohio. We talk about the QDMA, how he gets into food plots, how he gets into land management, um, basically how he grew his his inner habitat from being a hunter to a land owner and land manager. We talk about the program where he takes his property from the beginning to where he's at now. So it's a pretty awesome episode. A lot of regular guy stuff like, like we all are. He's a smart guy, though, so it's a really cool conversation, and um, I'm excited to get him on. Um, but first, I wanted to catch up with you. We haven't talked in a while uh, on the show here. You've been busy with your new Project 311 lease, which is making me super jealous. Um, yeah, good work with that. So, you know, what you been up to, man? Yeah, we had a uh, little delay getting everybody down there. We're supposed to go the week before, and uh, one of my lease partners, Rocco, his daughter had a baby. Everybody's doing great, so we had to postpone it for the following weekend. So, What were you doing? We were putting together a shed hunt, and then we were going to go over the food plot plans, where we're going to put them, what we're going to put, you know, the logistics, all that stuff, working with the landowner. Very nice. So you ended up getting down there, I saw. Yeah. Went down, had a good weekend. Uh, There's a cabin uh, by the local lake there. It's a public lake. Uh, Rocco found a guy that has a cabin. We rented it. I think it could sleep about, gosh, I think the second night we probably had eight to ten people there. So that was a good time. Had a few brewskis, campfire, did some shed hunting, and uh, made some new friends that I hadn't met up until this point, just talking to them over the phone while I was getting on the lease. No, that's awesome, man. It's got to be exciting for you, you know, moving into this this new venture and, 
how are you feeling about it on a scale of 1 to 10 right now? Probably about a 37. <laughs> I mean, every time I get on there, it's just it just blows me away with the sign. And you, everybody saw all the, the sheds that we found. And I'm sure there's a lot more out there because we didn't kill ourselves, but we hit it pretty good. But you're, uh, you're putting these videos like the shed hunt. You got the video on YouTube. Yep. Got that loaded up. Uh, just put up a video. Bob took some footage on his cell phone. It's not the greatest quality, but uh, he did a great job explaining how his hunt went down, and we got some blood trail footage. And when you see the buck that he walks up to, you'll see why I'm so excited to be getting on this farm here. Amen, man. Yeah, I, I know Al and I have been texting with you all the time, and we're super excited slash quietly jealous of the situation you're in here, and, uh, you know, really happy for you. Um, all the lease partners and everybody seem like you're, you're kind of people. Oh, for sure. Because uh, that could always be tough, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I mean, the proof will be in the pudding come hunting season, but I'm getting all the right vibes. I mean, they had seven people on the lease last year, and he's cut it down to four. Nice. So he's, he's trimming some fat, and after getting to know Rocco, who's in charge of the lease, he uh, he's definitely our type of guy, and he's got the same goals in mind, and just a down to earth country boy. Hey man, aren't we all? That's awesome. I think um, judging by the the videos you've posted and the sheds you found, I mean the terrain looks awesome. You have some topography, which is new to me, pretty much. Period. I mean, I'm part of Southern Ohio as well, but up in Michigan, my property is flat. Right. So that, that's pretty awesome. And um, the video you made of that new food plot area where you were frost eating, I think you put a how-to frost eat video on Facebook and uh, YouTube. Uh, yeah. That that little spot looks to be killer. I mean, you're sneaking out of the woods. You're below the crest of the hill. The deer is going to be – it's going to feel sheltered as the big buck's sneaking out, and you're going to be right there with a the food plot. It's, it's kill plot to the T, I mean, if you – in, in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. And it's it's surrounded by some thermal cover. There's a block of pine trees to the west of that plot. There's uh, some tall, uh, I'm not sure if they're warm season grasses, but some kind of uh, old field that's uh, in between the pines and that plot. It's probably two or three acres worth, so you got some bedding close. Uh, lots of good cover, and, and just the woods are thick because they're not Super shaded. I think I showed on some of the 311 videos when I got the camera down low at the deer level. Lots of sunlight getting in there, and it, it's it's just with the topography and, and the the uh, all the edge and the different uh, diversity. It's just it's just a perfect recipe, and you can see why these big bucks keep moving in there. Every time they take one, there's a couple more that move in. Well, yeah, I mean, if you have a spot where they're moving in, once you tell a big mature buck and another one moves in, you have the spot. So that's, I mean, that's awesome. I think, Absolutely. Uh, I think you guys are on a good spot there. I, I would encourage everybody to check out the Habitat Podcast YouTube. Uh, Brian's project, his lease there is called Project 311. And uh, he wasn't the only one getting out there, getting some Habitat work done. I was out... Um, about probably two and a half weeks ago already, I uploaded this video uh, on the 25th, I believe, of March. I was out there 
opening up a kind of food plot expansion next to one of my tree stands. My buddy Brent helped me hang. It's kind of a winding extension off my food plot into the cover. And then next to that, which was kind of a corridor already, um, it's, it's fairly thick, a lot of buck rubs and whatnot in there, but there was no bedding. I dropped probably 75 trees. Hinge cut almost all of them. I fell a few, but hinge cut most of them with a habitat hook, and, I mean, I just opened up the canopy, sunlight coming in. So that that video is also on our YouTube. You can see what we've been up to. Um, and I think uh, even with the whole coronavirus thing going on right now, I mean, I'm trying to get out there every chance I get and, and you know, social, social distance myself, <laughs> right? And, uh, you know, it, I, I tell you what, it felt good. I was only out there a couple hours and I dropped that many trees with that hook. It was it was awesome. I want to do it again. Well, you told me after visiting Jake Ehlinger's place that you need to cut more. And when I first watched that video that you just posted, I thought you were at Jake's. I mean, you dropped a ton of trees around that opening. And that's what it reminded me of. So you're doing good stuff there, brother. It's going to really pay off for sure. No, thanks, man. That's a good point. I, I I forget what I say sometimes doing all these podcasts, but, like, after walking Jake's, after walking another friend of mine, Alan Brissett, down in Jackson County near me, he's one of our cooperative guys, these guys level trees. I'm talking there's there's not a tree standing and um, the buck sign they have is incredible for southern Michigan. So I'm gonna I'm gonna get my feet wet. I'm gonna keep moving into it. And you know, we had Jim Brock around here. We had plenty of people, Nick Nation on here talking about this stuff. It works. So you know, check out the video, check out the podcast and uh, get out there and try some of this for yourself, guys. I mean, wear your helmet, wear your chaps and and experiment a little bit. Whatever you drop, if if for some reason you create a barrier we didn't want a barrier, you can you can fix that with the same tool, the chainsaw, you know. So the thing that I would say we talk about the most is letting the sunlight hit the forest floor. Out of all of our guests, I think that's the number one thing, and um, that's what I'm trying to do here. So, Yeah, you had a good example of that. You went back and showed that path that you cut through the, the hinge cut that you had there, just open it up, making it a little easier for the deer to get through there. And like you said, there's nothing that you can't rearrange if, if you're not 100% satisfied with it. Exactly, exactly. So, well, I hope everybody else out there is, out, you know, getting some habitat work done. You know, no better time than now. The weather's been cooperating, and uh, we can't really go to work. So, I uh, think we should move into Jason Hardy from Ohio. Brian, what do you think? Let's do it. And this episode is brought to you by Killer Food Plots. Be sure to check out KillerFoodPlots.com right now. They have a seed special going on because all the trade shows have been canceled. They have buy any two seed products, get the third product 50% off plus free shipping. Be sure to check that out on the Killer Food Plots Facebook or KillerFoodPlots.com. I will also be sending in my KFP soil test kit uh, here very soon. And then um, lastly, I'll be using a bunch of their Retain product on some new trees I have coming uh, and arriving real soon as well. So we also posted a video up on YouTube of uh, our friend Corey Francis and how he uses that KFP Retain as well. So be sure to check that out on YouTube. And then all the products at KillerFoodPlots.com. 
Next, this episode is brought to you by Packer Max Call to Packers. Now, this Packer, or any Call to Packer for that matter, is probably the most important tool that I use when you know when I'm playing these food plots. By far, the first couple of years I did habitat work. I never used the Call to Packer. I would just use the quad tires or you know a piece of fence as a hair right behind. But this Call to Packer is awesome. You know, you fill it up with water. You bring it over there. You pack your ground, you get that good seed to soil contact, not just spreading those small little clover seeds into uh, a dirt fluff and, you know, then getting buried too bad by the rain, getting, you know, buried too deep and die on their way trying to germinate and, and seek the sun. So, what I do is I pack first, then spread out my small seeds and pack again. That way they have great seed to soil contact, they're not buried too deep, and the Packer Max is a perfect tool to use when doing that. You can check them out at PackerMax.com and any Habitat podcast listener who mentions the podcast will get $50 off any Packer Max called to Packer. It's free money, guys. 50 bucks in your pocket. So check them out and uh, let Lincoln know we sent you. Now before we get into the episode with Jason Hardy out of Ohio, I want to mention our new Habitat podcast land plans service we're offering. We offer uh, a digital plan or a boots on the ground property tour plan for all of our listeners. If you have any sort of need for a habitat and hunting plan for your property, check out habitatpodcast.com and our land plans feature. This is a consulting service we're offering to uh, just a select few this year as we get into this and, you know, if you go to the, the website, look up Land Plans at the very top. You can read all about it. And if you're interested, you can submit your email on there, and, and we'll get right to you. We're doing a 5,000-follower giveaway on Facebook as well. You can have your chance to win a free digital land plan formed by Brian and myself for your own property for free. 5,000 Facebook-like giveaway. Check us out, guys. That's habitatpodcast.com slash landplans. Now let's get our excerpt from Charlie Morse before getting into it with Jason Hardy. Hello, this is Charlie Morse from Morse Nursery, and today I'd like to talk about persimmons. Um, persimmons aren't uh, talked about much up north because they're mainly a southern tree, but we offer a cold-hardy persimmon. And these are unique trees that uh, are late-ripening soft-mast. They typically drop from October into December. But one of the great attributes of persimmon is that they flower in June. So it's a fruit tree that almost never uh, has the blossoms frosted off. Very reliable. You can look this up under the Morse persimmons at morrisnursery.com. And uh, we have a great guest on the line tonight. We have Jason Hardy from Hardy Brothers Outdoors in Ohio. How are you doing, Jason? I'm good. How are you doing, Jared? Good, good. Thanks for joining us tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. No problem, no problem. We've been chit-chatting for a little while now trying to get you on here, and uh, we are finally here. So. I appreciate you taking the time tonight. Now, normally we, you know, as you know, since you listen to the show, we uh, we start this out. We want to hear about who you are, where you're from, 
all the dirty details. Do you mind starting out with those for us? Sure. I can uh, jump into that real quick. Um, I am. I live in Columbus, Ohio, um, have been here in this area all my life, um, hunt primarily in southeast Ohio, and have been hunting for about 40 years. Uh, I, I got my start when I was, uh, I guess, 10 years old with my uncle. Took me squirrel hunting, and, you know, I was already as a kid, an outdoors uh, kid that it was always, we lived with, uh, by some woods. I was always in the woods, but he took me out the first time squirrel hunting, and it was something that I just immediately latched on to. And, you know, the next 40 years, I haven't missed a, a season of hunting um, with him. So he had taken me to his father-in-law's place down in West Virginia, and uh, they had a deer camp there. I've grown up there with a deer camp that uh, was really something I, I kind of thought until recently, you know, everybody had a deer camp because I guess I was so spoiled I'd always had that. Um, but it was a great thing to grow up with. Uh, I learned from a group of guys that um, that were, you know, not a whole lot. They were about 15 years older than me. It was my uncle and uh, his brother-in-law. And just a, a great group to grow up uh, with, guys that, uh, you know, taught me how to be an ethical hunter, taught me to be, it was a law-abiding group that, uh, you know, how to go out and do the right thing. And, uh, you know, just a, a quick shout out to those guys. Um, you know, my, my uncle Jeff Terrell, Dan McGraw, Frank Hughes, those guys that, you know, can't possibly pay them back for, you know, the experiences they gave me growing up. And, uh, you know, one other guy that, uh, provided that, that opportunity to all of us was Chuck Hughes. And Chuck was my, um, my uncle's father-in-law. Um, he actually owned the property. He owned the camp and, and hosted all of us. You know, anytime we wanted to come down, the door was always open. And even when he wasn't there, you know, we knew where the key was hidden, so we could show up pretty much any time. But uh, he's someone that uh, – big shout-out to him. He's, he was a, a 94-year-old World War II veteran that we lost uh, in September. And uh, he, the opportunity he gave me, I talked to him a couple years ago, and I, I said, Chuck, you know, I, I want to thank you for what you've given me. And I don't think he understood – what I meant by that, um, but it was something that he gave me, my uncle, all the guys. It was just, you know, the place was always open, and it's where I grew up hunting. And, you know, very fortunate to have had 40 years of, of time hunting uh, with him and just the opportunity to, you know, hunt on his land and always a place to hunt. So um, so grew up hunting in West Virginia, um, did some hunting in Ohio, uh, which was where I lived uh, or where I live. But the majority of the time, because it was with family, I was hunting down there. Um, I work in IT. I'm a, I have a desk job. I'm indoor most of the time. So uh, my my day-to-day -day is, uh, you know, working, the proverbial working for the weekend. So can't wait to uh, get through that work week so I can get out and spend as much time outdoors as, as I can. No, I think a lot of us can relate there, brother, and uh, especially – I like how you pay tribute to, you know, the guys who got you involved in this whole thing. I don't know if we, we do that enough. You know, I've, I've told my dad, thank you so much many times, and dad, thank you again for, you know, starting this fire in me. I don't think uh, you knew the gasoline was going to be poured on, but it's here now, and uh, I think it's very cool. And, and, Brian, who got you into this a long time ago? My dad and his brother, my Uncle Tom. Yep. And, uh I tried going with them before I was 12. Back then in PA, you had to be 12 to get a license. Same here. And, uh, so I had to sit there and watch and whine while they drove away in the mornings until I got my license. But, yeah, I've been going with them 
ever since, and uh, really appreciate them giving me that opportunity. Now, do you guys think that having to to wait, you know, Brian, like like you and I did, and Jason, I'm not sure if you did or not, but like I had to wait as well till till I was 12 uh, to even go with a bow and and 14 with a gun, and I think that probably made it even, you know, burned it even deeper, just having to watch him go away and whine, like you said, Brian. You know, I, I don't even know what the laws were, you know, back when I first started in West Virginia. I I went out with my uncle hunting. They, they drugged me along. Uh, you know, I, I remember buying a license as a kid, so I don't know at what point, you know, we had to have a license or what the laws were like, but... Um, you know, I, I do recall it. I mean, as a as a ten and twelve year old kid, I mean, you just can't go hunting by yourself. So right. it was something you were dependent on someone else. And I mean, there was times I was doing high school activities where they took off for the weekend to hunt, and I didn't get to go. And and that was one of those things that just absolutely drove me me crazy. That you know, when do I get to go next? Yes, sir. I think uh, that drove us all crazy. And kind of leading into where you went next, you know, tell us about your early years maybe kind of how you transitioned into maybe some QDM type things, uh, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's 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 funny to, to see where hunting is today and the, the focus on on inches and trophy buck hunting. And, you know, the guys I hunt with, we started off, you know, it was, it was a bucks-only season. Uh, there were no doe permits at the time. And you went out and you shot the first buck you saw. And, you know, we would come in uh, by the end of the week. We had a buck pull. We were, we were there all week. So we had a buck pull, and we would have a buck full of, of spikes. And, I mean, a, a legal spike was two and three-quarter inches long. And, I mean, we had some that were, you know, barely legal up to four, five, six-inch spikes. And if you happen to get something that forked and was a four-point or a three or a six, um, that, was, that was the biggest buck in camp. Um, so we really – I grew up with this – this thing of, you know, you shoot the first buck because you may not see another. And our goal was really about, you know, who can be the first one back to camp? Who has the best hunting spot? And that's how you were kind of measured. You know, the guy with the best spot got his buck at daylight and he was back at camp, you know, by, I mean, literally 8, 8.30 in the morning on opening day. And your season was over. You, you hung out for the rest of the week. <laughs> and, yeah, it was, it was a great week, but, you know, it was over. But you also knew, if, you know, nobody passed a buck at that point. You you took what you saw because you might not see another buck all week. And there were weeks where, you know, a rough year, you know, someone would shoot a spike on Thursday and that was the only one we saw all week. So um, that was early. That's that's what we were all doing. Um, it was probably in the early 2000s that one of the guys that we hunted with, Frank, he started getting into QDMA. And he started talking about, you know, we need to look at, by this time, West Virginia had changed. You know, I think you could shoot three or four bucks, you could buy extra tags, there were doe tags available, and there were guys that were coming to camp buying the maximum number of tags and tagging out on the first four bucks they saw. And Frank started talking about, um, you know, we need to think about what we're shooting. We, we need to think about whether we're, we're filling tags, you know, don't just fill tags. And we had two sides of the road, and there was a rule, you know, your first buck can come from this side of the road, and everything else has to come from the other side. You can't shoot everything we have on our side of the road, or we're never going to have have big bucks. And it was a, it was a tough thing for, for guys to swallow and say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to pass that four point. I'm going to pass that six point because you didn't sit there thinking, you know, I know there's multiple eight points out there to shoot or bigger bucks. 
But it was something that I started you know, kind of setting my own APRs and said, you know, I've, I've shot enough small bucks, now it's eight point or bigger. And it was, you know, any eight points. It didn't have to be outside the ears or anything special, just, you know, a point restriction that I wanted a solid eight point. And I did that for a little while. And then I had some buddies here in Ohio who had gotten to the point where they said, you know, we're not shooting anything that doesn't go on the wall. So that was a little bigger step. So I, I stepped up to that and said, you know, all right, if I'm going to shoot a buck, let's make it something that's going on the wall. And I, I shifted my thinking to saying, you know, that basket eight, let him go and start to recognize that, you know, I, I can shoot a doe. So I want deer meat. I can shoot a doe. And I really shifted my mentality there to, you know, if I'm going to fill the freezer, let's fill it with a doe. Um, other than that, you know, let some of these bucks go because, you know, we're not going to see the big bucks um, that we want to see if we don't do that. And it was it was 2009, uh, probably maybe the year before, that we actually had a, a significant buck hanging around my property. I had a, I have some land down there. And in 2009, I shot him, him and it was uh, – I don't ever score bucks. So I'll put a tape to him myself and get a rough rough idea, but it, it was it was a drop time buck, uh, 13 points with a few stickers, Whoa. 140. Yeah, he was, it was, if not the biggest, the second biggest buck we'd ever shot down there. And he was in the, the mid-140s range. And uh, just West Virginia or is this Ohio now? This was West Virginia. Wow. And, yeah, uh, yeah it was, it, it was a wall hanger. Everybody knew he was out there. Everybody was after him, and for me, it was this kind of a final validation that, you know, if I hold out, there are some bucks out there. I'm not going to shoot one like that every year. I realize that, but by holding out and not shooting that that first buck that came by, had I shot the first buck, I never would have seen this particular buck. Um, so it was a real shift for me in in thinking and an eye opener that said, you know, hold off. That, that big buck is not the, the one wandering around aimlessly. You might have to pass a few smaller bucks before that, that big guy finally makes his appearance. Yeah, that, I mean, how old were you when that happened, when you made that shift, would you say? Uh, how long that, have you been hunting? That was 2009, so, geez, what is that, 30 years? About 30 years? Okay. Yeah, um, so, yeah I spent... Go ahead. I say I spent a long time shooting, you know, whatever came by, and it was I'd probably been on my wall hanger kick for three or four years before that that buck came by. So it was a big shift for me. Yeah, no, I I can appreciate that. I think a lot of us hunters have that shift, um, kind of to the five stages of hunting we talked about uh, on episode seventy three with Tony Smith. It's like. I'm trying to think of when I made that shift. I was about the same time. I was I was shooting pretty much whatever up until about 2009, 2008, 2009. So I mean, different ages, but still, interestingly enough, the timing. I think QDMA was probably rolling pretty good about that time 10 years ago. And, and that's so, what I was going to credit is I, I think yeah. at that point there were a lot of guys getting into it, and, and the guy in our camp, um, he actually lives there on the property. So he was a big proponent of it and saying, you know, we, we really need to think about this. And he owned a, a good chunk of the land where he, he implemented a lot of the QDMA practices. Um, but I think that was it, that that's, that was where, you know, he was very involved and he was sharing what he was hearing with the rest of camp. And, you know, everybody hunts for, for their own reasons and, and their own rewards. And I'm, I'm a big believer of, 
you know, shoot what makes you happy. So even though, you know, I've, I've made a shift for myself, right. I'm a big proponent of, you know, shoot what makes you happy. But it just, it was a shift for us that guys started thinking twice about, you know, do I shoot that one or do I shoot a doe? And, you know, what, what's my goal here? Is it to, to fill a tag or fill the freezer? What am I, what am I really after? Right. And, uh, Jason, tell us a little bit about your, uh, first time getting in the food plots and making that shift from going from a wall hanger trying to shoot bigger deer to trying to do something with the property to help you out in that category. Yeah, yeah, 2008, which was when we first started seeing that big buck, was the year that I actually bought 25 acres that connected into the family property in West Virginia. So suddenly I had my own place that I could plant my food plots, I could put stands, you know, wherever I wanted. And, you know, have the, the, the first priority. So, you know, my, my property, my stand, my food plot. Um, so I decided, you know, let's, let's see what we can do. And, and, you know, everybody at that point was, was food plot crazy. So I, I did take the first right step and, you know, immediately did a, uh, soil test, sent it off and came back and the, the pH was around four or five. Um, it needed four tons of lime per acre. I didn't have any equipment, really didn't have, I shouldn't say I didn't have the willingness at that point to sink a lot of money into, you know, pelletized lime. And so I just, I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to buy the clover. I'm going to buy some of the different uh, seeds. I'm going to spread them onto the ground. We tilled it. Uh, I did have access to a tiller. I, I tilled it. I spread it. We, we drug a piece of fence over it as a cul packer to get some contact and really had limited success. And was a little stubborn at that point of, you know, I knew it needed lime, but I really didn't understand enough about what that meant and, and what difference lime made. So I, you know, for the next couple of years, I really repeated that process of, of till, seed, and have a disappointing food plot. Um, so it was, I, I started into it. I didn't do a whole lot to educate myself. And when I look back now, I'm like, I hear guys say, you know, if you're going to spend all this money on seed and this and this, don't you want to spend the money on these other things that are going to make you successful? And and I just, I really wasn't educated at that point on, you know, what's it take to be successful. And, you know, I had several years of, of significant mistakes. Um, finally turned the corner. I, I was able to use the neighbor's property. He had a small field and did a clover patch there that uh, the, the pH there was better than what I had on my property. Uh, and had some success there, but for the most part, it was uh, it was it was rough going um, with the food plots at that point. Yeah, that's interesting. You took the time to at least do the soil test at first, because a lot of guys completely skip that step, and I'm guilty of that myself when I started. But I was spoiled because I just happened to luck upon a good place to put one, and I had a beautiful food plot. And then for the rest of the time that I was clearing other places I thought well it worked on this spot so I just ignored the soil test and kind of started going downhill from there yeah this this clearing that I had it had actually been a pine point that the previous owner had he'd had it cleared they came in dozed and all so I mean it had had you know mature pines on it for years and just you know the soil was full of acid from from those pines and it was just something that I just didn't understand. I looked at it and said, you know, I might not get the lush green food plot, but I'm still going to have success. And I would blame it on lack of rain, that, oh, I didn't have the rain last year that I needed. And 
August, so let's try it again the next year. And and it was uh, it was rough going. Yeah, for sure. So so did you eventually get the right lime on there? And what did the lime do for you? You know, when I started having success on the neighbor's property, and it didn't need the investment, um, and it literally the neighbor's property was you know a hundred yards out my back door. I shifted my food plots over there and had success year after year with a clover field there. And, I mean, it was it was one of these – I have to dig out a picture for you guys – one of these just gorgeous clover fields that you look and it's it's 10 inches deep without any weeds in it. It was just beautiful. So I never did address the issues on my property, but shifted over there to clover where I had a lot of success with, um, you know, the, the fields were doing well, the deer were eating it up. Um, it just did did really well. Um, but I never really made that full shift and never really had the equipment down there to do, you know, what I felt like needed done, um, to make that property better. Looking back, you know, I probably should have gone and and just gone the pelletized route and said, you know, each year, at least I'm getting some incremental improvement. Even if I don't get the big bang of 4,000 pounds per acre, at least do the annual and get the benefits of some. But I, I just, I never did at that point. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. I mean, we talk about that all the time, about doing what you can with what you have. And you brought up a good uh, tip for everybody. You know, you might not be able to get it all done at once, but taking the time to put as many bags out as you can every year, eventually it's going to catch up and it's going to help a lot more than it's going to hurt for sure. Exactly, yeah. So did you expand on that 25 acres or add any more property to that or – well, you know, I was I was hunting there, and, you know, I, I mentioned we had a camp full of guys. There were several generations there. The older generation was, was started um, uh, getting a place they couldn't hunt. Um, lots of family dynamic changes in terms of, you know, cousins getting older and married and different responsibilities, and it really shifted how much time we were all spending there. And in 2014, uh, my brother actually bought land, my brother Josh, who's um, – doing the Hardy Brothers Outdoors with me, he uh, he purchased 70 acres in southeast Ohio and just, I mean, picked up a beautiful piece of land there. Um, he's got a cabin. He's got 70 acres and about three-acre pond. And I wow, started looking, perfect. yeah, it's it's an amazing place. <laughs> um, yeah, it made, made me jealous of the cabin I had on my 25 acres. I'm like, geez, I... He, I've been working on this for years, and, and you just bought this, and it's ready to go. Um, but it, it's, it's a great piece of property. He started hunting there right away. I was still pretty committed to hunting in West Virginia. And I, with limited vacation, that's where I, I spent my, my gun week. So I wasn't there much. But in 2015, he shot um, a nice 10-point with his, with his bow. And he got it a couple weeks before gun season. And because I had spent so much time hunting in West Virginia, I really hadn't hunted a lot in Ohio. And, and everybody knows the reputation of, of Ohio for big bucks. And I just decided, you know, I've got a, an extra day of vacation. Maybe I should hunt over there opening day and just, you know, try his place out. So I asked him, you know, do you care if I, if I come down? You've got your buck. And he said, yeah, you know, come on down. So I headed down there Sunday before opening day. Um, I had walked the property with him once before, and I'd seen an area that I thought was was interesting. It was it was a I don't know 150 yard wide section of hardwoods with thick pines on each side, and I just looked at it and I thought you know this just seems like 
such a great area for deer to be passing through from one thicket to another and, and just a, a great spot. So I went out and I set up my stand. He showed up a couple hours later and asked me where I'd set up and I told him and we walked out there. It turns out I'm in a tree 20 yards from where he just shot his buck. <laughs> and I said, well, I mean, at least we've each got an eye for the, the same characteristics. Yep. But, um, but I went out Monday morning. I climbed up in that tree and I just, I loved the spot from the minute I picked it. Waited on daylight, and just as soon as it was daylight enough that I could see across to the thicket, I hit my grunt call a couple times, and uh, I saw this dark dark shape running down the edge of the pines, and out comes this buck. That it was one of those that when I saw him, you know, clearly a shooter buck for me. Um, couldn't couldn't believe what I was seeing, and I mean, he came in, stopped looking around. He's looking for a fight. Whoever was over here making noise, he was coming after him turned and ran right on down to about 40 yards where I shot him. And he was just incredibly thick beams, kind of, he's got some weird trash on him. He's not one of these racks that you put on the wall that's like, you know, it's beautiful in terms of symmetrical and everything, but it's just, it, it was the biggest buck I'd ever shot. I mean, I'd been out in the tree. I hadn't hunted really hard in Ohio for years. And I go out and in the first, you know, 30 minutes after daylight, I shoot this buck that's, you know, a lot of guys would just, you know, it'd be the buck of a lifetime for them. And at that time it was for me. Um, so I was really, really lucky. And I, my, my, my brother was doe hunting. He came over and, and he gave me the quick reminder of, hey, just so you know, that is my spot and I'll be there <laughs> next year. <laughs> is he your so, older brother, younger brother? He, he's my younger brother. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But he, he set the, set the, the, uh, the, the rules yeah. there. Exactly. That just because you got your buck, this is not your spot now. Uh, so the funny thing was, um, you know, he's got this beautiful piece of land, and we'd sit on the back of it, and we're at the top of the hill, and you could see the property behind us. If you think about a tic-tac-toe board, he owned the bottom middle square. And behind him, that middle square was owned by somebody who didn't own any of the outside boxes, and he wasn't a local person. So there was no road access, just this 80-acre chunk of land that sat there in the middle. And we'd sit on the hill and say, man, someday – Someday we got to own that. It's just, it looks amazing. It's, it's got uh, cover all over it. It's fields. I mean, it just, it looks amazing. And so I got permission the following year to hunt back there. So this is 2016. And my plan was to go back to the same tree where I'd shot the buck in 2015, assuming my brother got one with a bow. I'd go right back to that spot. Well, he didn't get his bow kill. So Sunday before gun, um, we go back on the 80 acres, walk around. I pick out a spot. I find a spot on a ridge where I've got a nice view. There's a thicket close by. Hang my climber and um, head in, get ready for the next day. The next morning, I, I go out there. I'm in well before daylight, get myself situated. And It was kind of foggy that morning. Uh, I'm sitting there. I, I look down the hill, and just as far down the hill as I can see, it's, it's, it's over 100 yards Shotgun hunting, and I'm I'm not confident out of that distance with my shotgun. But I see a deer, and my immediate thought is, you know, first deer of the morning, you know, here's here's a doe, and its head's behind a tree. I can't quite make it out, and I keep looking and looking, and all of a sudden it takes a step forward, and it's another buck of just clearly a shooter buck for me. And he's walking towards the field parallel to me. And he's at a distance that I am just I'm not comfortable taking a shot. And I'm watching him, and he's walking parallel to me. And I'm like, you know, you can't just let him. You can't let him walk. I mean, you can't let him get to that field and, and disappear. 
And so if, you know, if he keeps going, I'm going to take a shot. I mean, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to take a try. Well, all of a sudden he turns and starts up the hill and he's closing the distance on me. Keeps coming and keeps coming. And all of a sudden he's, he's inside 50 yards and I'm following him with the gun and he's, he's huge. I've never, never seen a buck myself like that and on the hoof. And I realized the wind's blowing over my shoulder. I'm like, you need to take the shot. He's, he's close enough. And I shoot. He runs and stops and looks around. Doesn't look like he's been hit. And I shoot again. This time he jumps and he takes off running. And I watch him run out of sight about 75 yards away. And at this point, I'm like, you know, I, I, I know I hit him. And climb down, easy blood trail, and I find him about 80 yards away. He's uh, – I, I was speechless, had no idea how big he was. Uh, again, I've never had him measured. I put a quick tape to him. He's 160-plus. Yeah, buddy. Uh, yeah, he's he's a bruiser. The kicker was, as he was running off, just before he went down, he hit a tree, snapped off his G3, which okay. was probably eight, nine inches long. Did you find couldn't, it? Couldn't find it anywhere. I was back oh, there with no. a rake. I looked yeah. everywhere. My taxidermist patched it up, made it look like the other side. Yeah. But um, but it was just it was a heartbreaker to see him him break it, but just an incredible, incredible buck. Um, but that was really my first move from hunting West Virginia consistently to this new property in Ohio, and you know back to back, twenty fifteen, twenty sixteen, two just incredible bucks. And and we've got a buddy who hunts with us, and he he started in on me right away about how you're the luckiest guy on and on. And I I refer to him as the the lucky bucks or, in the bucks case, the unlucky bucks. But uh, (laughs) I tell Troy, he's he's like, you know, you're the luckiest guy. Buddy, I've been hunting 37 years. I've earned those bucks. Yeah, right. I'm like, you know, know, 7.30 each morning, you're right, every guy wants that to happen. But the reality is, you know, I've hunted a lifetime for these two bucks, and I, I put in season after season of of watching that first buck that came by be a little one, and the next one was a little one, and, and passing bucks. And I didn't have to pass one either of those days, but he calls them lucky bucks uh, as a joke that, uh, you know, you're, you're the luckiest. I'm like, buddy, I got a lot of hours in that stand uh, that helped earn those bucks. So, Well, plus you obviously have an eye for where you need to be sitting. Uh, which kind of leads me to my my question. Uh, back to your your fifteen buck and your sixteen buck. You know what what's the habitat like in this part of Ohio? You know what are these two farms like, and you know what what are you looking at? What type of uh, brush are you looking at? You know, is it oaks or where are you at? Yeah, you know that's interesting because it leads into that eighty acres that we we ended up buying. Uh, you'd sit and you'd look at it and say, man, this is beautiful land and it's, you know, it's thick and there's all these fields and, you know, on one side is this big pine thicket. And it's an area that, um, you know, someone years ago had, had cleared it and just pu- went in and planted, you know, acres and acres of pines. So in that area, you know, it's acres and acres of pines. My brother's property, it's, it's oaks, it's maples, it's, you know, it's a mix of hardwoods. Okay. Um, his property was actually years ago, it was all pasture. So, you know, the, the cattle were in and out of the woods. They were in the backfield. Um, so it was, it was pasture land. This 80 acres that we looked at and, and, and wanted so bad, it looked so great. And we didn't realize when we bought it, you know, it was a, it was a reclaimed strip mine, which we knew that going in, but we really didn't know what that meant. 
um, you know, what's it mean, a, a reclaimed strip mine? And um, Hawking County and really southeastern Ohio has a lot of uh, strip mines down there, reclaimed strip mines. It was all done back in the, the 60s, 70s. And, uh, you know, basically when they do a strip mine, once they're done, they come back in, they push dirt back over top of everything, and you don't really know what you've got under the ground. You have, you know, do you have an inch of topsoil? Do you have a foot of topsoil? It varies based on the area they covered. But then they seed the property with something to stop erosion. Well, it wasn't until, you know, sometime in 2018 that I found out what we had. And that huge field was full of this plant called Cerisia lespediza, which, if you're not familiar with it, it's an invasive plant that they plant on strip mines. Do they still plant it, or this is what they were doing back then? That's what they were doing back then. Gotcha. Um, nothing eats it. It's right. low value. It is just, you know, it, it, it's it's difficult to get rid of. It, it's terrible, terrible habitat. So that's when I looked at the field, I was seeing that. And all this, uh, the How bushes. How tall does it get? Uh, it'll get three, four feet tall. Okay, um, like any cover, really. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you could go bed in it, yeah. but there was, you know, like for turkeys and stuff like that, there's no, there's there's not much in it. The bugs aren't there. Uh, right. You know, I'll, I'll brush hog it and nothing comes out of it. Oh, um, it's just, it's it's not good habitat. And all these big bushes that we had that were tall and thick were autumn olive. Oh, yeah, familiar Which, with that one. Yeah, yeah, I hear you talk about them sometimes. And there's mixed thoughts on, you know, there's some guys that, that would say, you know, it's okay. And I think from a cover standpoint, my opinion of it is, you know, it's good cover, but there's better things you can do. Yeah, they're so, definitely invasive, right? I mean, yeah, can't absolutely. Argue that, but absolutely. Our, our DNR used to have us plant them as you listen to Larry Larry Dames' podcast. I can't, I never heard of that until he told me that. I mean, they used to recommend planting it here in Michigan. There, there's there's a, a lot of the invasives you hear that, that it's, you know, yeah. Metaflora Rose was something that was recommended at one point. Wow. Um, so, yeah, the, the autumn olive. Uh, you know, I don't know what the origin of it was, but it's it's very common on the strip mines. It it grows on poor soil. Um, I don't think they went in and seeded autumn olive. I think it's more spread by uh, the birds that eat the berries off of it. Yeah. But um, but th- that's what we had everywhere. So when you looked at the habitat we had, you know, on the one side, the the, the west side of the 80 acres is that pine thicket. It's got some hardwoods. On the east side is another section of hardwoods, and then in the middle is this this 80 acres of invasives. Um, so, you know, we, we purchased this 80 acres in 2017, and, uh, you know, I just killed a big buck in 2015 on the west side of it, a big buck on the east side of it in 2016, and I couldn't wait to hunt it. And I set my stand right on the edge, and I'm like, you know, I've got this spot. I'm going to sit here. There's There's trails in here. And I'm going to sit here and, you know, at dark, you know, that another big buck is coming by, you know, the 2017 model is going to come by and I'm going to shoot it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was just that's I was so confident. And I sat there and I would watch this field and see nothing. And I mean, day after day of just nothing in this field. And when I did see something, it would appear, you know, on the far edge, it would walk or trot across the field into the woods and be gone. It never stopped to browse. I never saw something bad. I didn't jump things out of it. There was just, there was nothing happening on this 80 acres. There were some trails. You could tell they were crossing it, but it just wasn't the, um, 
the habitat that was going to draw them in to, you know, they're not going to browse, they're not going to uh, bed in it. It just, it wasn't great habitat. Um, I mentioned the um, Cerecia lespedes. I don't know if you ever heard the term uh, aleopathic. It's, it's a, it's a term that talks about, you know, a plant that either gives off like a chemical through its roots or gas through its leaves that suppresses things around it. So autumn, uh, not autumn, Cerecia lespedeza is one of those plants that nothing grows well around it because it's producing these gases and chemicals that suppress growth around it. So it's a plant that's really hard to deal with and, and get other things growing around it. I guess the only thing I've ever heard being aleopathic would be like a black walnut. Is that the same thing? Yes, black walnut, tree of heaven. Um, okay. You know, there, there's a number of them out there, but it's something that, you know, you, you don't just go out and, you know, mow it and plant stuff beside it because, you know, it's if it's still in the soil, it's still impacting it, the growth of things. So it takes time to, to clear that up. But uh, but that was something, you know, for 2017, after having luck in 15 and 16, we buy this land, and, and I'm just completely shocked that, you know, nothing is using this property um, because the habitat is just, it's just not there. So, Jason, what did you do from 2017 going into 2018 to try to change that? You know, my looking back at my history, my history said, you know, plant food plots. You know, if, if they're not eating, plant food plots. And so that was, that's what I was going to do. I went out, I, at this point I didn't know that I had Cerecia lespedeza and how invasive it was and how hard it was to plant stuff around it. So we went out, we mowed a couple areas, we sprayed them with glyphosate, um, tilled it, we put in clover, you know, we planted some pumpkins. That, that was more of a, you know, let's throw some in and see if they grow and we'll, we'll get the kids out here. Uh, and we did an area of, of native warm season grasses. Um, so I just, I thought I'd experiment with a few different things and, and see what would happen. And what I found, um, the deer were coming out, they were hitting that clover, um, but I don't think they were used to coming there to see that, that they weren't used to a food source there. So we had, you know, 25 pumpkin plants. We got a couple pumpkins. They ate the majority of them. But, um, you know, we started, we started trying to do some food plots. We had a little bit of equipment. Um, I had a little John Deere 1025R. My brother had a 2032. So, you know, we're, we're dealing with brush hogs and tillers and things that are, you know, four and five feet wide. Um, my little 1025, you know, going through this three-foot-tall Cerecia lespedeza would bog down. It was not the, the ideal equipment for managing 80 acres. Um, I had been using it on my 25 in West Virginia, and it, it worked well. But um, we were pretty limited on, on our resources, so we were kind of testing and seeing, you know, how do these food plots do, how do the deer react. Um, but we also started looking at, you know, what resources are available to us. And we had a neighbor that uh, he has some property that his father-in-law had farmed, and he would talk about, well, you know, I've heard this is available and this is available. So we started poking around websites, and, you know, it was a real eye-opener when we found out all the resources available to us. Um, Ohio Department of Natural Resources has people that, you know, if you call and schedule, you can get people to come out that are experts in, in various fields. We've got a biologist that we've been working with now um, for, I guess, we started in the end of 2017. But she comes out a couple times a year and, and walks the property, looks at what we're doing, makes recommendations, 
um, you know, it helps me like my native one season grasses. I, I planted it. It was growing and, you know, I wasn't sure what was, what was little blue stem and what was, uh, foxtail. And she would come out and point out, you know, here's, you know, you've got good starts here and good here and it gave me a little bit of that encouragement and feedback to know I was doing the right thing. Um, we had a forester come out from the DNR that talked to us about hinge cutting versus edge feathering and, and, um, actually just cut, well, I shouldn't say hinge cutting versus edge feathering, hinge cutting versus just cutting trees and doing that as some edge feathering. And I know there's, you know, there's, there's multiple camps on that. And, <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> that, that's I'm one of those topics. Just yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I, when we talked to the forester, he had, you know, he was, he was not a fan of, you know, going to do a bunch of hinge cutting, but he also was not someone to say, you know, there's never a place for it. So he described, you know, here's what I see benefits for cutting a tree. Here's the benefits I see a hinge cutting. And, you know, at the end of the day, this is your property. You make those decisions. Um, and I so think that's, an, I think that's important. Sorry, Jason. I think we should touch on that real quick. But my forester said the same thing. He goes, you know, it's not a practice that a lot of foresters recommend. Um, but what's your goal, Jared? Uh, my goal is wildlife. Well, um, you know, we need to remove this canopy. Let's get the loggers in here first and then take the big trees out and then, you know, use hinge cutting on some of the low-value stuff. So to your point, kind of the same same take on it. You know, it's your property. Do what you want with it, but let's um, make sure your goal is aligned with yeah. what that is. Yeah, and, and the forester that we were working with, I mean, he came through with the spray paint and painted a bunch of trees just down the edge and said, you know, here's, here's what you can do from a feathering standpoint and talked about the various various benefits that come with feathering. And, you know, as he's, he's, he's spraying all kinds of stuff, and he, he said, you know, here's one, one dot is phase one, two dots is phase two, and I'm marking everything that I would cut if this was my place. But, you know, ultimately, every tree is up to you. I mean, you look at it and say, I like that tree. Just skip it. I mean, it's, right. this is yours. So, I mean, he was a, a great resource. And he, you know, we started talking. We'd, we'd gotten a, a timber plan for the property. Um, but talking to him and looking at our timber plan, it really changed how I looked at the woods as well. That, you know, I'd always gone into the woods and, and heard people talk about taking timber. And I looked at every tree as, you know, every tree you cut down is, is money. And working with the forester, he walks through and he says, you know, here's a tree. I mean, this is a, this is a, uh, you know, this is an oak that's never going to have any timber value. Look, you go up this many feet and it splits and it's doing this and it's this. That tree has no timber value. So now make your decision on, you know, what's the wildlife value? What's the other value? What's it shading? And it really changed how I walked through the woods and started looking at trees and saying, you know, that, that clump of sassafras trees is shading out, you know, potentially, you know, new oaks or, or something else. And it just, it really changed me from thinking, you know, every tree has a dollar sign on it to truly managing it and understanding, you know, which trees are valuable. How can you, you know, achieve your habitat goals while also maintaining some of that timber value that, um, that you may need down the road to help pay for projects. So it was, you know, I, I say free, and I hear people say, ah, it's not free, you're paying with your taxes. But, you know, the, these people from Ohio DNR have been awesome resources for us. They've come out multiple times. They, they spend, you know, a couple hours with us each time walking through, answering questions. I've got them on email so I can shoot them questions and pictures, and and they've, they've just been great. Uh, we also got with the local soil and water conservation district. Yeah, they've got food plot seed purchase programs, tree programs, equipment rental 
Um, you know, this year, and I'll talk about it later, is, you know, we're looking at renting their no-till drill. But they've got a lot of resources there. It's just it's shocking to me how many resources are available that, you know, they, they don't cost you any out-of-pocket money. You're not paying additional. There's stuff you're paying with your taxes all the time. Um, we've connected with the yeah, USDA. That's, that's a great point. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. That's a, that's a great point you brought up because a lot of people don't realize the, the amount of help that's out there for them, and especially states like Ohio. And I'm, I'm pretty sure just about any state with a really good DNR or a game commission, they, they have plenty of resources available. And the other thing that you brought up I wanted to touch on was the uh, hinge cutting. It's kind of funny because we joke around a lot about it and have some fun with it. We even made some bumper stickers up, which – caused a little bit of controversy from what I was just told over the weekend. I was talking to a good buddy of mine who's a biologist, and he said somebody actually told him, can you believe those guys feel so strongly about that that they made bumper stickers about it? And <laughs> he, he had to explain to them, that this, this, don't you get that it's uh, they're just having fun with it? I mean, it's, it's crazy how serious people take that. And, and it does have its place, but we're not, you know, just to clear the air with – a couple of the people that might think that we're some type of, you know, hinge cut the world. That's that's not what we're about. It has its place, and I'm I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, I think uh, I I think uh, I probably shouldn't have made those stickers, based on the fact that we try to you know remain informative, <laughs> not get on on one side of something. It's just the way I am. But you know, that day I was feeling a little spunky and figured, what the hell? So yeah. sorry oh, for those hilarious. who we offended. Uh, but there is a place for hinge cutting uh, sometimes, and there's also some times where, where it's not, you know, yeah. recommended. So, like any tool. Yeah. Well, you pick a topic with hunters, and there's a camp on each side of pretty much everything. Yeah, that's true. Um, so it's 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 a tough um, it's a tough balance. Um, well, but you're uh, so getting back to to your resources. How did you know where to look online? I mean, we've talked about some of this in the past with with Chad Thalen and, and some other guys on what's available here in Michigan, um, at least where to start. Just real quick for the listeners, where did you find that stuff, and what should somebody maybe Google if they're yeah. looking for that type of help? You know, when, when we found the stuff with the ODNR, that's where we started. And I want to say when I went to their page, they had a like a landowner's tab. And you had to do a little bit of digging to find it, but it's 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 in there. And I would say, you know, if if you can't find it, call your local district office, and they're going to be able to point you to somebody that, you know, it's the resource is so readily available if you just call and get connected. So, you know, some of the information out there, you know, it's there's information, but it's it takes talking to somebody to really understand, you know, what they can do for you. So I would say, you know, check your DNR website if you can't find it there. Call your local, you know. Michigan Department of Natural Resource District 1, District 2, whichever, however you're set up, same in Ohio or wherever you're at, someone's going to be able to point you to those resources. Once we got into um, the first person, I want to say the biologist, she said, hey, when, if I'm coming out, let me get the forester. Well, the forester was, was located at the Soil and Water Conservation District office. So that got us into soil and water conservation. Um, also at the Soil and Water Conservation District office was a USDA representative. 
So a lot of these people share offices, and a lot of these offices are, are fairly small. Um, so everybody knows everybody, and, and when you start talking about, you know, I'm looking for this or that, they can they can point you to the right person in the office. Um, so we've done a, a we've had a lot of luck with making connections. Uh, I mentioned USDA. We had a uh, got a picture on one of our trail cams of a feral pig, which uh, you know there are a lot of people. There's another camp for you. There, there's those that love, hey, would love to have hogs, and there's those that you know have experienced hogs and say you don't want hogs. Well, we got a hold of USDA. They came out. They set up a feeder. They set up cameras, and and we're trying to pattern this thing. That we've got guys that you know they're working full time in Ohio to try and and eliminate any that are out there uh, because they can so easily get out of control. But uh, you know, connected with those guys, we got into the USDA and the Equip program, which is a, a cost share program. So we're currently in a program that's helping us remove the invasives. Um, it'll provide funding to help plant natives. Uh, build habitat. So when we take those um, autumn olive, you know, you cut down an autumn olive, you got to do something with it. Well, if you put it into a, a four foot by eight foot brush pile, you get paid to remove it and you get paid to pile it up. Really? Is, Some, that, a, is that a federal program or is that a state program? It's a federal program. Um, you know, EQIP, and I, I don't know what the acronym stands for. I'll have to find it for you. But it's Within Equip, there's I don't know dozens of programs. So there, there's pollinator programs that you'll plant a field in pollinators. There's yeah, okay. You're I mean, there's all really kinds of programs. Them. Yeah, it's there, there's some great stuff. Um, you know, once you get into the program and they write it all up, you got to stay on top of it and 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 really pay attention to you know what you're committing to. But there's also you know we signed up for removing I think five acres of of autumn olive, and as we've done it, we've decided, you know, I think we want to leave a strip along the fence line just as a travel corridor. Well, we'll get paid for the part we did and not paid for the part we didn't. So there, there is some flexibility in the program. They've That's some, nice. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 pretty cool, but it's one of those things that, you know, you start talking to these people, get beyond, you know, I'd say get beyond some of the Facebook recommendations that you get people, ah, oh, you know, my, my buddy was going to do that, and they said that, Every four years, they'd require him to clear-cut his property. Well, that's not true. So, you know, get to someone who can give you the facts because the programs are really, you know, they're, they're really helpful. Yeah, you should definitely ignore those idiots with the pro hinge cut bumper stickers, guys like that, for <laughs> sure. Right, <So>. right. <laughs> yeah. You, know, you make a good point, though. Um, everybody, you know, Facebook's a great thing, but, like, everybody – does have an opinion, and it's hard to separate, you know, the the truth from the the not. Um, and a lot of this is opinionated, so <clears throat> it's um, that's a good good recommendation, Jason. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then the last programs that we got into, we were looking for tax breaks on our property, and there's a couple in Ohio. There's the Ohio Forest Tax Law, and there's the Current Agriculture Use Value uh, Program, and it's two different programs that basically based on how you're managing your property dictates which ones you can qualify for. Um, I won't go into the details of each. There's a lot of details, but we got into Ohio forest tax law because you could get into it immediately. All you had to have was a forestry plan. Uh, so we paid for a plan. I think we paid, you know, five or $600 to have a plan created. We had 35 acres of timber out of 80 and they gave us a tax break on that 35. Um, after three Is there years, a minimum acreage on that, Jason. 
I want to say there is. I, I don't recall. I don't recall what it was. We we were clearly over it, but I. It's it's not like you know you have to have twenty or twenty. It might be 10, five or ten, and don't don't trust me. I'm that Facebook guy right now that's throwing out numbers I don't know. Um, <laughs> we'll send you a sticker. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, thanks. <laughs> um, but it was a it was a program we were able to get into right away, and then the current agriculture use value was a program that once you had your timber under management for three years, you could qualify for CAUV, and that program. We just applied because we just finished our third year of timber management. We just applied for that. And with that program, now they will give us a discount on the entire 80 acres. And our crop, because it's current agriculture use value, our crop is timber. But they don't differentiate the property as 35 acres of timber, 45 acres of, um, of fields. They give you a discount across the whole piece of property. So it's, it's, a, it's a better discount program. But... Those are programs that, you know, we called our local um, auditor's office, tax auditor, and talked to them. And they've got experts in there that, you know, they're going to be able to tell you, you know, here's which ones you qualify for. Here's the, the good and bad of each. They did a really nice job of educating us. And, and I've thrown out multiple agencies. I mean, there is nobody that we've worked with that hasn't just, you know, fallen all over themselves to help us. I mean, huge, huge help. Big, big kudos to those, uh, those agencies that have helped us. No, I'm glad that you have found some agencies that are actually offering to help, and you maybe you talk to the right people at those at those spots. Because I know Brian's dealt with some stuff trying to get some CRP things going, and I know Corey Francis, my buddy, has dealt with some stuff um, in Michigan and getting some of his stuff going. And he kind of said it depends on who you get at the office that day. Sometimes, and I, uh, I've, heard, I've heard that. Yeah, I've heard that too. So, moving along, you have really advanced from back hunting, you know, you're 25 in West Virginia to to where you're at now managing your 80 acres, planting food plots and, and getting to know these programs. Um, I guess, tell us what happens next. Where, where do you go from there? Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, big, big changes from the 25 acres. I mean, I mentioned I had the, the John Deere 1025R that I was – you know, perfectly sized to manage 25 acres in West Virginia. Well, I've now made the shift to, you know, in 2017, 2018, to where I'm spending more time in Hawking, um, Hawking County at my brother's place. And, you know, he's got 70 acres. I've got 80. We've got 150 acres now that we're managing. And it's, I mean, it's a whole nother ball game for us. So, you know, we're, I'm still pretty food plot uh, focused coming in, you know, out of 2018 into 2019, and it just happened over the summer. I, I'd gone on vacation to the beach, and uh, I knew I was going to have time in the car to listen to some stuff, and, and I, I thought, you know, I, there's got to be some kind of podcast out here that I can learn some stuff from. So I posted out on a Facebook page, the Habitat Managers page, and asked, you know, what do people recommend? And the Habitat podcast popped up, and that was actually, you know, Larry Dame, who I had been communicating with prior to uh, on other topics on the Habitat page. And he was someone that, you know, I respected a lot of what Larry was sharing. He was someone that seemed very knowledgeable about, he's he's a big rabbit hunter, as, as you guys know. Yep. Or no, I shouldn't even say rabbit hunter. He, he likes to run the dogs with his rabbits. 
and I just saw a, a lot of feedback from him, so I respected his opinion, and he threw out to me, he's like, hey, you know, you need to listen to episode 45 with Dr. Craig Harper um, of the Habitat Podcast. So he was the one who, who pointed me the direction of you guys, and I listened to that first podcast, and a couple things jumped out at me that um, that he was talking about. And one of the things that really hit home for me was he said, you know, you need to know the 10 most common things that are growing in your fields. And don't stop there. Know the 10 most common trees in your woods. And his comment was, you know, what do you – he kind of said, you know, what are you managing if you don't know what you have? Yep. And I realized, well, what I'm doing is I'm hitting everything, assuming everything is bad. I'm killing everything. And I'm putting down some kind of a food plot seed that – you know, here's here's whatever's here, assume it's bad, kill it, and plant something that's, you know, pretty much a monoculture. So he really changed my thinking. And then I listened to his talk about, you know, five phases of early successional habitat. And it, it made me realize that, you know, there, there's a whole lot of this stuff I'm killing that the deer are used to eating. So how do you, you know, maximize what they like and minimize what they don't like and that has low benefit? Um, so I listened to that episode 45 and it, it was something that, you know, the combination of, of the information that he shared and, you know, listened to, to you and Brian and it, it was, for me, it was a thing where I'm like, you know, here's, here's two ordinary guys that are just doing the hunting thing and the food plot thing and the habitat management thing. They're not, you know, they're not, you know, here's these huge seed companies that are giving us seed to do this, not a huge sponsorship. And I so I, so I I it was a real connection for me. I'm like, okay, this is this is kind of cool. Yeah, so, we don't have any we don't have any you know prior commitments to to make us say you know one way or another about what Dr. Craig had to say. You know. Yeah, yeah. So I I really enjoyed what he said, and and at the end of that podcast, and I don't, I, I don't know if it was that one. I don't know if I listened to a few more, but that was where I really made a mental shift and said. You know, I'm no longer the food plot guy. I'm now the habitat management guy. That you know, I really am looking beyond how do I plant something the deer will come eat to how do I make the habitat better for the deer, the turkeys, everything. You know, how do I make this a a wildlife mecca? And that was, I mean, so that was over the summer, and and it was. It was literally on that trip that I started listening to. I, I finished number forty-five, and I started listening to just every other, every one on the list, and going through. And you know, I, I looked down through the list to see, you know, some of the ones that I've listened to, and I've listened to a lot of them multiple times. Um, I thought the one episode forty-six with Eric Long and Cody Altizer. One of the things that they said, you know, are you a conservationist versus a hunter? And I, I thought, you know, that I would have answered that question really different a year ago. And right. it's, yeah, it's after listening to some of this, and I, and I started thinking, you know, I, I really started looking at this 80 acres as, you know, it was, we've inherited somewhat of a, uh, a strip mine, reclaimed strip mine wasteland. And I'm now looking at it and saying, you know, how do, how do I leave this place better than I got it? How do I turn this thing into, you know, something that benefits all the wildlife, everything out here is better because of what we're doing. And, it, you know, the, the root reason behind it may be because I want, you know, I want to be able to hunt it. 
But at the end of the day, there's going to be things out there that I will never hunt that will benefit from the efforts that we're, we're putting into it. Um, no, I think uh, we're all making that shift, right? I mean, when I started out before I started the podcast, when I was just a, a guy on the QDMA forums learning about all this stuff, following guys like Brian and, and Triple C and all these other guys who have had these awesome property threads on there for years. I mean, all I was doing was food plots, um, hand tools and and spreading seed, you know, with a with, with my hands and lime, etc. But it's, it's really amazing as you kind of open your eyes and just, you know, your mind a little bit and talk to guys like Eric and Cody and, and Craig for sure. Read Craig's new book he came out with this year. Uh, it's just an amazing book, and it's just there really is so much to learn, and that's I think why I love this podcast so much because every person I talk to on here, including you, you know, I'm learning stuff every single time, and the more we can open our minds and, and learn, like you said, you're shifting to a habitat manager now versus just a food plotter. Yeah, and it's it's something I never would have fathomed and it's just the, the more I've listened to it I'm like this just all makes so much sense that you know it, everything that benefits down the food chain is going to benefit up the food chain right. and it's it's the, the holistic view of it is just a complete mind shift when you sent me that interesting um, uh, organization the, the bee and butterfly fund Tell me a little bit about that, because I haven't heard of that, and I'm going to definitely look into that, maybe try to get somebody on the show about it. Yeah, that's one that, um, you know, I connected with, and I think somebody posted about it on Habitat Managers a year or so ago. And basically, they're an organization that they've picked eight or ten Midwestern states. Ohio is the furthest east. Um, and it said, you know, we've got this program to help improve bee and butterfly habitat. And you can enroll property in the program. They work with private landowners. They work with state agencies, local government. And you basically come in and you commit to their, – their minimum for a private landowner is two acres. But you commit two acres to their program, and they will provide you with free seed for that. So I've been talking to them for you know the last probably year, and I just wasn't quite ready to – plants because I wasn't sure I had the Cerisia lespedeza under control, but I had a conversation with them earlier this year, said, you know, I think I've got some areas that I'm ready, and I'm actually looking at, you know, it's somewhere between two and four acres that I'll put in that program, and it's a combination of, because it's, it's the bee and butterfly fund, there's, there's two components to it. One is a section that they want you to plant that's specifically for the bees, and it sounds to me like it's primarily clover. And then there's another section that's that's native uh, pollinators, and uh, they will provide they'll work with you to understand you know what 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 are your goals, um, and and make the mixes that are going to help you achieve your goals. But the overall idea is you know how do you promote that habitat for bees and butterflies, and you know obviously the monarchs and and things along those lines. So really cool agency. I'm just getting into the point of actually pulling the trigger and saying, you know, I've got the land. Um, I want to say I owe them a phone call in the next couple of weeks to tell them how many acres so they can they can order seed for me. But pretty cool organization, something that um, 
if you've got property and you are thinking along those lines of, you know, how do I improve overall habitat? Um, great source of, of seed that, you know, you have to commit to prepping the land and doing some things, but the seed is, it's not cheap if you want to go do it on your own and they're willing to, to provide it to you for free. So pretty cool. Yeah. Great info. Thanks for, for bringing that up here. I think, uh, We'll probably have to grab somebody and, and get them on the show. Um, and this, this is just part of you, you know, again, shifting from the food plotter to the habitat manager. What else, you know, have you heard or listened to that made you keep along this path? Yeah, yeah. The, um, you know, the, there was there was an, another episode with Jake, uh, Jake Elinger, and I think it was when you went and toured his farm. And one of the things, the comment that he made, and I, he made it, and I'd recently heard it on a Wired to Hunt podcast. He talked about this idea of I'm trying to mimic Mother Nature. And sometimes what I find, we get so prescriptive in how we do things that we've lost track of the randomness of what Mother Nature does. And he talked about different age class of trees and bushes, that you know everything doesn't have to be the same. The Wired to Hunt podcast that I listened to, they talked about planting, you know, multiple seeds via um, via a single planter and not being obsessed over whether this one went a quarter inch or an inch deep and said, you know, think about how Mother Nature is spreading seed. I mean, the, the, the wind and animals and everything else is spreading seed. And it's not all being precisely planted in nice rows and, and in the optimal conditions. And yet it works. And it was something that, you know, when I heard that, and I heard it, I heard it twice within probably a 10-day period between uh, the Jake Ellinger and the Wired to Hunt podcast. And it just made me think, you know, you can really obsess over some of this in the prescriptiveness. But when you get down to it and you look and say, you know, how is this happening in nature? It, it really I mean, almost simplifies some things. You know, I don't have to be perfect. Right. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of this, you know, comes back to trying to do it how, how Mother Nature does. I mean, opening up the canopy, you know, letting that sunlight in, that's uh, what she would have done with, you know, prescribed fire or tornadoes or whatever else wipes out mature forests. And there's things like the way the buffalo roam, or Grant Woods talks about that all the time, his buffalo method and, and roller crimping and drilling. I mean, that's just how the buffalo did it. I mean, it's all mimicking Mother Nature. Um a lot of what we talk about is mimicking Mother Nature. That's a great point. Yeah, yeah. It was when, when I heard it, I'm like, that's that's a pretty cool phrase, mimicking mimicking Mother Nature on there. A um, couple others. Um, one of the things I've kind of nicknamed what we're doing back on the 80 is the the Oasis Project. Um, okay. Don Higgins had talked about you know look at your land like a checkerboard with the surrounding properties. And you're trying to figure out how do you make your square stand out? And I look at our property and if you zoom in on it with like Google Earth and you start start zooming up so you see more and more. I mentioned before, we're that middle box of the tic-tac-toe board. And when you go up, the outside of that tic-tac-toe board has roads around it. We are right in the middle. And so I started looking and saying, you know, how do I make that the habitat oasis of, in the middle. That yeah. Everything from those surrounding boxes 
wants to come there, whether it's for bedding or food, whichever it is that we're able to create inside that box, that we are the biggest draw in the area. Um, so I thought that was just an interesting comment from Don. Of, you know, it's not just, you know, look beyond your property, understand what's going on around you, and and build your property accordingly. And I've seen a few different, you know, podcasts or heard a couple different podcasts where people talk about, you know, why are you planting three acres of beans when a quarter mile away are 80 acres of beans? And right. why, why are they going to come here? What are you doing different to make them, them come here? So um, I thought that was interesting. Don talked about that. Both Don and Mark Drury talked about um, the wind. Um, Don said, you know, the wind has to be almost wrong for the hunter and almost right for the buck. Um, which really, you know, sometimes we get focused on, you know, making the wind perfect for you, which probably makes it not a perfect wind for the buck that you're hunting and just shifting and saying, you know, maybe I need to be a little more aggressive here and, and hunt a wind that's not exactly right, but it's not exactly wrong either. Yeah, a lot of us get caught up in being directly downwind and we think, okay, we got the wind in our face and, the deer are just going to come from here and come from there, and it's it's not that simple. When you actually start to understand that concept, it's amazing what you start to see in the woods because Don's right. I mean, you're giving them just about everything that they normally would get, and you just have a very, very slight advantage, and it makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, it's like Vegas where, you know, the best odds you're getting are at the uh... – the blackjack table where it's like fifty one forty nine in 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 their favor. Uh, so it's, yeah, yeah, it's you're not going to get that sure thing. So you know what can you settle for? Well, and I would tell our listeners if uh, they have some trail cam pictures on their properties of some shooter bucks in daylight, and maybe they weren't there that day, because I sure as hell know I do. Um, Go back and look at the weather history, like weatherunderground.com or, or somewhere where you can see what the history of the weather was, and you'd be surprised. I mean, I have a lot of my daylight pictures of bucks that I'd shoot are on a southeast wind, which is totally 100% opposite of what I need on my farm for a lot of my stands. Um, so it's like, you know, how do they know that? Well, this we're in their neighborhood. We're in their, their woods. Like, they... They have the upper hand here, and uh, sure enough, the nice ten point I killed two years ago on my property, southeast wind, and it's just amazing to think that. Okay, I set up all these stands for a, a west to northwest to southwest. You have a bunch of southeast that should be hunting. So I guess what I'm saying is I'd urge people to go back and take a look at your trail cam pictures and just see what that wind is, and see if you can get away with it. Is all I'm saying. Yeah, that's one of the things I've heard you guys talk about that I've thought I need to do a little more of that with my trail cam pictures to look and see, you know, where was he coming from and what did that wind look like? Yep. I know that um, Don was episode 49. If anybody wants to go back and listen to Don Higgins' episode, that was a great episode. Uh, Marjorie with Wind Scouting, he was on 38. Um, he actually talked a lot about Kind of the same things that we seem to deal with here in some of these more pressured states, you know, about disturbance and, and things like that. So uh, that was interesting. I thought you found that interesting as well. Yeah, that was, you know, it's 
I, and I, I think you made a comment about it that, you know, I'm one of those guys who, you know, is probably out there more than I should. And it's, I have a hard time going down to the cabin and, you know, just, just fishing or doing something that I, I want to get back to the 80. I, there, there's always something I want to do. And, uh, you know, I, I was even doing it some, you know, much later into the season than a lot of people would have done. But, you know, I tried to finish up at, you know, two in the afternoon and, you know, they hear the tractor head back and, you know, they hear the tractor a lot. They hear the tractor disappear and it goes quiet at two o'clock. And, and I, I had pretty good luck seeing, still seeing the deer that I was hunting. Um, didn't get them in range a lot of times, but I was still seeing them, but it's the disturbance thing. It's, it's tough when you, you want to be out there all the time and balancing that. Well, and I know on, um, Episode 36, Phil Lincoln, I listened to that again today, and uh, he mentions he likes to do a lot of his habitat improvements midday or or whatever he's doing, checking cameras or whatever it could be. He tries to do a lot of it midday so that they do get, the deer do get conditioned, like you just mentioned. Um, Yeah. That was episode 36, another good episode. Yeah. I've always hunted, you know, when when I hunted in Ohio, I hunted a, a good friend's farm that was, it was actively farmed. And the deer, I mean, they, they get used to certain amounts of, of activity. And, you know, they, they get used to, you know, a tractor passing through, the, the oil well pumper driving through the woods and, and leaving, and they get used to some of those things. And I think some of that that we do down in Hawking, you know, they, they, they're used to some of the disturbances midday. And as I mentioned, that we don't have a lot of deer bedding in the middle of this 80 acres, so, you know, they may be off several hundred yards and they see us or hear us, but they also see and hear us leave in the middle of the afternoon and, and it goes quiet again, so. Yeah, yeah, I think, um, I know that our Michigan deer are a little bit on edge, so I know that we have to be super careful and I try to stay out every time after even September 1st. It definitely doesn't happen. Yeah. That's my goal. And then, uh, but my property is kind of interesting. They don't really start moving in until second week of October. I really don't have anything to take pictures of all summer, uh, antler wise. Usually, once we start getting that cooler weather is when they start moving in. So it's just interesting to hear how, you know, you guys deal with that versus how, how we do. Yeah, I, um, I've, I've felt pretty good about, I've gotten to know the neighbors around us well, and I have a good sense for what their, the hunting pressure is like on their properties. And, and we have a pretty good situation where, you know, the, the neighbors talk, we've got a good idea how often people are out, and I don't think we have deer that are, you know, completely spooked. We're not terribly far from some public hunting, um, so I think some of the private property, even if it gets a little bit of pressure, it's not like what the public is getting. So, you know, the, we're the, maybe the lesser of two evils sometimes that, you know, if, if they are on the public property, they know there's heavy pressure. They might get a little bit of pressure on some of the private, but not quite as significant. So you have some public near you. Brian has some public near his new pretty awesome Ohio lease he's been bragging about. I'm going to have to get in the truck and drive down, try to pound some ground down there and and uh, and get me up one of these, these hollers. It sounds pretty interesting. It's it's a cool area. It's definitely something <laughs> I've you... I've never you, hunted southeast, so yeah. I'm just interested. 
I know you're. Uh, you guys are, are friends with Al, and he's down in that area. Yeah. So yep. you ever you ever make it down, we'll definitely get you out to the to the property. Will do. Will do. I know. Uh, and thank you for that. I know. Uh, I've been down a lot towards like Waverly, Piketon area, which is just straight south of Columbus. Yeah. You know where that's at. You're, you're yeah. From there. Um. And so, it's just. It seems like a lot of the the, the real nice stories and and properties seem to be a little further east. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's bigger into the foothills of the Appalachians. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm not familiar enough with some of the areas that are, are directly south, the Jackson County and some of the areas yep. you're talking about. But, you know, it's not terribly far. I mean, you're only a couple counties away from us. Um, but it's it's an area down there that, I mean, there's miles and miles of, of open land. There's you don't have the ag- agriculture down there that you have, you know, in the more central part of the state, in the northwest part of the state. But um, I, I, I don't know, you know, from county to county and some of that, you know, why there's such a shift. But there's southeast is definitely good habitat and, and good population of deer. So, Jason, I want to uh, be respectful of your time. Um I know we've covered a lot of good stuff here. What else do you want to cover before we wrap this up? We have uh, a couple more things on the list here I'd like to get to if you if you have time. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess one of the things we kind of talked about, the, the shift, and, you know, we bought the property and the shift in thinking. And I think the, the coolest thing, and it was this fall for me, that, um, you know, I, I look at it as a hugely successful year of hunting despite not getting a buck. Um, and it was because I – I, the stands that I had and the, the times that I sat, that field that I had watched in 2017 where I would not see a single deer, I was seeing 10 to 15 deer a night every awesome. time I went out. And so many of the things that I had heard people talk about on the podcast, I would sit there in the tree and just little things like, you know, when you're watching a deer, you know, ask them, why is that deer doing that? And I would watch a buck come out of the where we would turned back the autumn olive and make his way across the field and start looking at wind and just different things and, you know, watching him follow an edge that we had cut that, you know, we unintentionally cut the edge um, to do something else, but you could see him hugging that edge. And it was just one of those things that as I sat there this fall and thought, you know, all this work that we've been doing, all this stuff I've been listening to is really starting to pay off. We're seeing the deer, they're doing the things that we thought they would do. Um, and the number of deers that we're seeing on the property is just is exploding. Um, I went out. I had done a lot of camera scouting. I went out opening night. And, uh, you know, I had this, this buck pattern that, you know, every night he was coming out about 45 minutes before dark. And he was returning down the same trail at 645, 715 the next morning that he was – like clockwork. Wow. Blew me away that I was seeing it like this. And uh, I went out, I set a stand, and I put the stand in a spot, and it was one of those, it's not quite right for me, it's not quite right for him spots. But just the way I was sitting, by the time I was going to get a shot, he was going to be past me, so he shouldn't be looking at me. If he's made it that far, the, the wind has just just got us just right. And I went out there opening night, and sure enough, you know, right before dark, I hear the deer coming down the hill, and a doe passes through. And I see him coming up, uh, what I think is him, 
and he, he comes popping up, and as he's walking through, I'm trying to get a look at him. We've got a big six-point that's running around. I want to make sure he's – it's not the six-point. I don't want to shoot him when I know this other one's around and realize this is definitely not the six-point. I draw on him, and as I draw, he's he's 20 yards broadside, no idea I'm there. I've gone out, and I've sprayed a little bit of buck pee right where I want him to stop. He stops there. He's got his nose on it. I draw, and I bump the knock on my arrow and knock it off the string. Uh. I'm standing there at full draw with my arrow dangling between me and the rest, and I'm looking at him, and I'm like, he has no idea I'm here. Do I let down easy and try to re-knock and draw again? Uh, nope, just let him walk. He'll be back. Don't spook him. And I'm standing there, and I accidentally bump the trigger on my release, and I dry fire. Crack! He jumps. The doe takes off. He runs about 20 yards, stops, and feeds out into the field. He he doesn't. Not disturbed by it at all, and it was it was no big deal. I didn't see him again. Um, the neighbor saw him. I didn't see him again, but it was one of those situations where when I looked at all the stuff that I'd been doing to create the environment in the field for, for the deer to bring them in, everything came together for me. And it was just I made that mistake in my draw that cost me the buck. But it was something that I sat back and I said, you know, I've, I've done what I wanted to. I really achieved what I wanted to have created this draw I've created, I've, I've identified this path, I've got the spot. It was, it couldn't have set up better for me. And, you know, I'm convinced that this coming season, that will be a spot that I will, I will get deer in that spot, that we've just created a nice path there to the food and to a safe, secure spot. I've got an entry that I come up a creek, I step out of the creek and I'm up my tree. No, nothing knows that I'm in the area. And at the end, of, at dark, I drop down the tree, I'm in the creek, and nothing knows that I've left the area. Um, so it's, you know, when I look at what's happened the last three years, and I'm just seeing all the stuff I'm hearing and learning and putting in practice, it's all coming together, and we're seeing success. We're seeing, we're seeing a lot of deer. Good for you. No, I would consider that a success. I mean, yeah, the arrow came off the, the string, but had that not happened, I mean, you'd have been – you know, hammering through the vitals and tracking a buck. So he was dead to rights. Yeah, I mean it's you know it's like Murphy's law with big bucks. If it's you know if it's gonna go wrong, it will. And that's there's no you know no lie there. God's honest truth. But the fact that he was in range, had no idea, and you drew back, and he had no idea. To me, that's success. It, it was a big win for sure. I mean, especially coming from you know 17 when you were seeing. You know, no deer in that area and, and and whatever. I mean, so that's nice work. I mean, so so what do you have moving forward into into 2020? I mean, did he get shot? Um, no, not I saw none, him, but anybody none shot? Of, yeah, none of the neighbors have said they shot him. I, I mentioned before, we've got pretty good relationships with all the neighbors. Um, as the year progressed, we were checking in to see, you know, what did everybody shoot? We only had one on the adjoining properties, um, one mature buck that was taken off the property. Um, my neighbor, about 60 yards from this stand, he had set up, and he shot a, a nice nine-point, about 137-inch nine-point, he said. I had him on camera. It was, it was a, a nice buck. 
that um, he got a shot at it a week after I I messed up this shot. But when I talked to the rest of the neighbors, we did we took a, a number of does. There were a couple smaller bucks taken. But you know, I've been watching the cameras. It, everything looks good. We're seeing a lot of bucks are still. They made it through the season. Um, I'm actually putting together a video for um, our Hardy Brothers Outdoors YouTube channel of you know the Survivor series. So I've got pictures of all the bucks that that survived that I'm gonna I'm gonna share out there on our channel. But um, you know, looking into 2020, it's obviously habitat season. Um, so we're starting starting to work. I'm looking at um, native shrubs and bushes. I'm starting to build out a list. That equip program I mentioned before, there's some funding there to help us with some natives. So looking at planting some of those, I want to create a travel corridor. I mentioned, you know, my 2015 buck come, came from the west side of the property. My 2016 came from the east. I want to build a nice travel corridor across there so that, you know, over the years they've got a, a real nice back and forth between the sides of the property. Um, looking at switchgrass, I mentioned the pollinators. Um, I've got a couple pear trees that are coming, so I'm adding a few more fruit trees. I, it's the, the list is, is, is endless, <laughs> as you know. Yes, sir. Um, and the one thing I, this year I want to do is uh, I'm going to rent the, uh, the no-till drill. I want to give that a try and just see, you know, how does that work? That the more I hear about that, uh, I'm pretty interested in seeing, you know, what, do, what does that do for us? Does it, do we get some, some better looking plots? Uh, oh, I'm sure. By going the no-till route. So those are a couple of the big things that I'm looking at for 2020. Very nice. Now, are you? What are you planning to no-till drill? Are you are you gonna drill your switchgrass in with that, or are you doing food plots with that, or soybeans, or what are you thinking there? I'm looking at a mix. Um, you know, the, the the switchgrass I would like to do. Um, we've got a couple areas that um, I, I'm looking at. We don't have a crimper, but I'm looking at. You know, can we can we no-till or can we yeah no-till some beans into there and possibly knock down some of what's there. And uh, and see if they that helps protect them as they get a start, so the deer aren't in there eating them. Yeah, I'm, I'm really I'm interested in having not used a no-till drill. I'm interested in talking to the Soil and Water Conservation District to get some tips, and obviously watching some of the habitat um, pages to see you know what else are people using no-till for. But we've got lots of room. Um, I saw another podcast recently where they talked about you know some some switchgrass with pockets of, of food within them. So I'm starting to I'm starting to every time I get a plan I start I hear something new and I start tweaking it <laughs> and saying, Well what if I did this? So I, I in my head I'm I'm adding more switchgrass to try and, and give us some more cover that right now that that area that I've been hunting, it's it's a pretty open field and I think I can break it up into some pockets with some switchgrass and I'm hoping that uh, that no till might help me, you know, give it a good start. Yeah, I I can relate. I think uh, this will be episode seventy six, maybe by the time it comes out, something like that. So you can, you can imagine my plan has changed about seventy five times. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, <laughs> it's it's really and, and switch. I'm I'm putting in switch as well. I have uh, Cave and Rock arriving Thursday. Okay, UPS told me today, so I'm gonna I'm gonna frost seed and. And get a lot of that in too. I should have did it three years ago, but I didn't know what I wanted to do, and now I do. Um, I think and not having a drill is going to be my best route, but I think you're going to like the switch. You know, I think yeah. uh, 
we've done Mascantis, we've done willow plantings, we've done hinge cutting, and it's just the switchgrass is fairly low maintenance once you get it established. Um, I think that'll be a good a good ticket for you. That's what I'm looking for, and I'm hoping that maybe it will choke out some of that uh, Cerisia lespedeza for us too. That it'll get get big enough and thick enough that it chokes some of that out. So it's definitely on my list. Yeah, yeah, I think it it probably could. Um, you know, year two, three, four for sure. Yeah. Year one, yeah. obviously a little a little touchy, but. Well, very cool, Jason. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. I want to hear about how we can follow along with your projects, your videos, you know, and, and just see what you're doing as the year yeah. moves on here. Yeah, I, we we mentioned a couple times, uh, my brother Josh and I, we've just, you know, in the last probably 30, 45 days, we've started a YouTube channel called, called Hardy Brother Outdoors, Hardy Brothers Outdoors. And you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, you can find us on uh, Twitter and YouTube, where the majority of our activity is going to be on YouTube. But what we've done is we're creating a channel where we want to share the things that we're learning, that I, I'm always surprised at, you know, the questions that pop up in a lot of these uh, these discussions that, um, you know, once you've been through them, a little bit of, you know, seeing how someone else did it. We've learned a lot from YouTube videos. So we want to share some of that. Our, our uh, Oasis project, that's something that that 80 acres is going to be transformed dramatically over time. And we've got we've got pictures from day one. So we're going to be tracking that on YouTube. Awesome. Um, you know, our, our whole thing is, you know, we hunt, we fish, we do habitat management, pond management, food plots. My brother just bought a sawmill. Um, we're trapping, we've got various tractors, four-wheelers, different ways of doing things. And what we've found is, for ourselves, we've started following people that are like-minded, have common interests. And so we decided, you know, let's create this channel to share some of, of what we're doing. So we're just getting started. But, uh, I don't know, there, there's 15, 16, 17 videos out there. We're adding a few more this week. Um, I mentioned my my 2019 uh, mature whitetail buck survivors that I plan on posting some video around. You know, these are the bucks we've seen survive. Um, I've got some stuff out there on mineral licks and things we're doing. So it's something that if, if people are interested in that stuff, you know, check out the page. We're going to keep it, uh, you know, try to release new stuff every week um, and just create a little bit of a forum where, you know, if you're looking for tips on, on some different things around, you know, how someone else is doing it, kind of a neat place to follow along. So take a look at it. And uh, our, our theme around it uh, or our, our hashtag we're using is, you know, it's outdoors is always in season. So, you know, like hunting, deer season comes and goes, turkey season comes and goes, but we will always find some reason to be outdoors that there's always something in season for us. So don't tell my wife that. <laughs> Trust me, I've, I, I've gotten enough grief myself on that. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned fish. Uh, that's pretty darn impressive bass that you got pictures of from that lake. There, there's been a couple pulled out of there. That, that's my brother's pond, and honestly, when he bought the place, that was a requirement. It had to have a pond because, you know, I grew up just hunting every chance I got. He grew up fishing every chance he got. We're, we're kind of... Uh, the yin and the yang for hunting and fishing that, you know, as much hunting as I do, he does fishing and, and vice versa. Um, so I'll fish some and he'll, he hunts, he, he probably hunts more than I fish, but 
yeah, some nice bucks in that pond for sure, and the, the kids absolutely love it. We've got some good good pictures and videos of the kids pulling some some good fish out of there. And that's well, really fun, getting it. the kids involved. Yeah, for sure. Well, you guys got it going on for sure. We really appreciate you coming on and sharing all what you learned with us, and definitely appreciate you following along. And, and it really means a lot to Jared and I that you're learning something from us and in return, we're learning from you and every one of our other guests. So just appreciate your time, and uh, thanks again for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I mean, I, I think um, what you guys are providing in terms of uh, just an avenue for people to get information, you've had some great, great guests. And uh, it, it's if you haven't noticed the, the comments that I, I make out there, I, I'm promoting you guys all the time because – I've, I've learned a lot. I tell all the guys I hunt with, Mike, you got to listen to this stuff. It'll change how you think about what we're doing. Oh, man, that's that's awesome. It really made my day, you, you saying that. Thank you very much. And you keep telling your friends and everybody else uh, just just thank you very much. And, and we do have one more question for you, though. Um, i got to know your favorite tree, Jason. Favorite you know, I, tree, I, hunting tree. Uh, you're familiar with the question, so I'm yeah. to you. But I, you know, I want to know what tree when you walk up there. You going, oh baby, that's my tree. Yeah, well, I, I've got a, a, a kind of an interesting answer. You know, being from Ohio, my favorite is the oh, Buckeye. Don't say a Buckeye. Oh. <laughs> but it's actually it's funny. Uh, the Buckeye tree is is at the top of my list. My great grandmother had a. Buckeye tree in her backyard, oh, and cool. and from the time I was little, we collected buckeyes, and to this day, I can't go into the woods and pass a buckeye tree and not pick some up. That's but awesome. from a hunting perspective, I love a nice multi-trunked white oak. That if I can find something that I can get up, I can get between a few limbs and get myself situated in there. That's that's the ideal spot. That you know, if I'm walking through and I can find that, I'm absolutely thrilled. If I can't find that, then I'll 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 hunt for Buckeyes. I love it. Right, did you just make up the Buckeye story because I'm a U of M fan, or is that <laughs> it's legit? It's legit. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've got uh, you walk around my house. I've got Buckeyes on the counter. I've got Buckeyes on my bathroom sink. That I literally I can't <laughs> I can't walk by Buckeyes and, and not pick a couple up and put them in my pocket. It's it's a no. That's that's cool. And, <laughs> Your grandma's story, that, that's great. And you guys have a pretty decent football team. So uh, Every now and then we win one. Yeah, you know. No, that's that's very cool. And I'm with you on the White Oak. I Something something about it, I just grew up in White Oaks. And I don't know, the cover, the mast, I love it all. So yeah. I agree with you there, buddy. Well, thank yep, you so good. much again, Jason. We really appreciate it. I enjoyed yeah. it. Thanks. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Talk to you later. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Brian. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to this week's episode. And thank you, Jason Hardy, for coming on the show. We really appreciate it, and I thought it was a great conversation. Good luck to you and, and uh, the Hardy Brothers Outdoors team uh, this fall. Guys, I want to thank our sponsors for making this show possible. We have Packer Max Cult of Packers, Killer Food Plots, 5-2 Outdoors, Morse Nursery, The Habitat Hook, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, and HuntWise. We are very happy to support these great companies and friends of ours as they support us. We really love it if you guys check them out. You know, we got certain deals with some of them and, and really just uh, 
if you do talk to them, let them know, you know, Habitat Podcast sent you over there and, and tell them we said hi. Uh, next thing, guys, we have a bunch of new hats on the website at habitatpodcast.com. The link is in the show notes to this show, so you can simply look at your phone or wherever you're listening to this episode, hit the link right to the website, it'll take you right there. Thank you very much again to all the listeners. Really look forward to the next episode and the rest of the year with you guys here. Uh, Thanks for tuning in as we become better Habitat Managers. Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Spend your Saturdays with Life on the Water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. (laughs) Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss Life on the Water. Every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. (laughs) The destination for outdoor entertainment.